Let's begin with a word of prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As a young boy, I remember my mother would often have to remind me that patience is a virtue. I never enjoyed waiting for things. Whenever it was my birthday, I would always try to come up with complex arguments as to why it would make more logical sense for me to open my birthday presents earlier. And my wife reminds me that I still do this uh, to the present day. Well, on the first Sunday of Advent, we remind ourselves of what it was like for saints in the Old Covenant to await the promised Messiah. Await patiently for the consolation of Israel. And throughout, throughout Advent and into Christmas, we reflect on this rhythm of messianic expectation. Ever since our first parents fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, this world has needed a rescue. We need rescue because our sin cuts us off from relationship with God. And ever since the first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God has been in the business of solving this problem, of restoring ruined sinners to himself for his glory. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we find God's first promise that he will send his Messiah, the consolation of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord says this to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see that though The devil will wage war against the seed of the woman, against the church, against all who are in Christ. He will not prevail. He can only bruise the heel. He can only inflict a minor blow. But Jesus Christ, the offspring of the woman, the promised Messiah, he will bruise the head. He will emerge victorious in the battle. And in the incarnation, through his death and resurrection, Jesus has already delivered a devastating blow against our enemy. Jesus has already fulfilled the first promise of the gospel made to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, by enduring the wrath of God on account of our sin and uh, by suffering for us, by bearing the penalty of death that you and I deserved, beloved. And at the end end of the age, Jesus Christ will return in blazing glory as the judge of the earth, and he will vanquish sin forevermore. He will crush Satan under our feet, Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Every wrong will be made right, and sin and death will be no more. If we place our faith in Jesus Christ this evening, God makes a way for you and I to experience restored relationship with him. This is our great hope. This is all that we, we cling to. 
And this is why we rejoice and we give thanks in this season of Advent. God sent his son into the world so that through the promised Messiah, all who believe upon him would experience reconciliation to God. Our text this evening is all about this very hope of the gospel. The prophet Isaiah is declaring God's word in a situation that seems at the surface hopeless. The context of Isaiah chapter 40 is the Babylonian exile. Israel has been taken captive, the temple has been destroyed, and the nation has fallen. God's righteous judgment has fallen upon Israel for her sin. And now in the midst of her judgment, the people of Israel question the sovereignty of God. Are we still his covenant people? Has he forgotten us? Are we beyond his mercy? Are the promises of God that that have first been made in Genesis chapter three, are those promises now void? And the resounding answer the prophet Isaiah gives to the people of Israel that he gives to us is that God will never forsake his people. God will never forsake those who trust in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Well, as we look at God's word together this evening, these words ring all the more true for us. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness, God promises to deliver us from spiritual death if we place our trust in him. Well, let's look together at Isaiah chapter 40, and there are just three points that I have for you this evening. Firstly, that God does not forsake his people, and we'll see this in verses 1 to 11. Secondly, that God does not forsake his people precisely because he is God, We'll see this in verses 12 to 26. And thirdly, we we see that God brings strength and healing to all those who wait upon him. Verses 27 to 31. Well, firstly, God does not forsake his people. Look with me in your Bibles at verses 1 to 11. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you need to know that up until this point in the book of Isaiah, the message has been one of resounding judgment. God is a holy God. Sin and evil cannot be found in his character. And you'll you'll remember Isaiah's great vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, The prophet has this vision of the Lord and he becomes acutely aware of his own inadequacy, of his own sin, right? I am a man of unclean lips. And this holy God, because he is perfect and just, he punishes sin. And he promised Israel that judgment for their sin would come and judgment had come. Israel was taken captive. They've been been in exile in Babylon. Jerusalem had fallen. In other words, God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. And yet God is not finished with his covenant people. Isaiah chapter 40 comes on the heels of a message of judgment and yet 
points God's people to the hope of the gospel. Isaiah chapter 40 is really just a restatement of Genesis 3, verse 15, which I just read to you. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he will bruise the head of the serpent and give everlasting life to all who trust in him. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And we need to take notice that uh, this gospel assurance is not universally declared to all people, but notice Isaiah says, to my people. God only pardons the iniquities of his elect children, those who by faith receive and rest upon Christ alone. You see, the message of, of the cross is a message of comfort to all who believe, but it is, it is a message of discomfort to all who disbelieve. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Brothers and sisters, God's comforting word of pardon is available to you if you have placed your faith in him. And our iniquities are pardoned. They they are not just swept under the rug. No, our sins are absolved. This is a legal declaration. Christ died for you. Your sins, if you are in Christ, have been removed as far as the east is from the west. And this is truly the most comforting news that you could ever imagine. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Jesus Christ has shed his blood for you. You are justified. You are pardoned. You are declared righteous before God by faith. And the benefits of Christ through the instrument of faith are that you receive an alien righteousness, an, uh, a righteousness that is utterly foreign to you. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a righteousness that you and I do not deserve. And your sin, in exchange for this alien righteousness, your sin, our guilt, the death that we deserved, Christ has taken. Christ has borne and taken the punishment of us all in his death on the cross. And so in the place where there should be judgment, we find mercy. We receive double from the Lord's hand for all our sins, meaning where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Grace abounds all the more. Our sin is great, but God's mercy is far greater. Wretched though we are in Christ, we are We are a new creation. We are spotless. We are washed. We are made beautiful by the blood of the Lamb. And this good news of Jesus Christ, this this good news that God does not forsake Israel and he will not forsake us, this good news sounds forth in every time, in every place because God's word 
endures forever. John the Baptist in John chapter one was this messenger of glad tidings to all who are weary, to all who were spiritually uh, disheartened. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You see, the hope of glory throughout Israel's history was never about the messenger. It was and always continues to be about the message, about the content of the message, about the content of those who are heralds of the good news, of the prophet Isaiah, of John the Baptist, of those who are forerunners of the anticipated Messiah. It's about the content of our faith, the content of the promise first declared to us in Genesis chapter three. And and this is what the prophet Isaiah wants us to see, that these messengers were, were simply instruments in God's hands. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, this is a promise that we can stake our life on. Our bodies are in the process of dying at this very moment. Our flesh will one day rot in the ground And creation itself is groaning. Our life is but a breath. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And this is why our hope is not built on institutions or human beings. No, our hope is built upon the everlasting word of God that abides forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus' words will not pass away. And Jesus Christ, the word made incarnate, is knocking on the door of your heart today. And he says, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Will you listen to him? Will you hear his voice? Will you behold your God? Verse nine. John Calvin once said of this verse, Isaiah 40, verse nine, uh, that this speaks to the sum of our happiness, which consists solely in the presence of God. In other words, to behold God, to behold your God is the essence of the Christian life. Now we will see in part, and then we shall see in full. And in dark days, in seasons of despair, we, we can be sure that he is with us. Look at how the prophet reminds us of the gentle love of our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Brothers and sisters, though we are like sheep who have gone astray, Jesus, our great shepherd, will lead us into green pastures. Beloved in Christ, never gloss over 
this precious truth. It is Jesus Christ who is our chief shepherd. It is Jesus Christ who rules and reigns even now over his church. It is Jesus Christ who is the bridegroom who at the consummation of all things will come to judge the living and the dead and to right every wrong. Our shepherd never turns his back on his church. He says to us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church. I, the great shepherd of the sheep, will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And these words for us are a ballast in the storms of life. Praise God. Praise God that he does not forsake us. That he did not forsake Israel and that he continues to walk and lead us into green pastures. Well, secondly, God promises he will not forsake his people because he is God. And we see this in verses 12 to 26. How can we be sure God will deliver us? How do we know we're forgiven? Can we trust him? Is he good? Is he faithful? Israel certainly struggled at times to believe that God's word endured. Her present reality was one of agony and suffering. And so our situation is often very similar to the people of Israel in exile. And the storms of life were bombarded by thoughts in our minds, oftentimes evil thoughts. Can we really trust that the word of God will stand forever? Can we trust God when our experience of daily life is so tainted by sin, is so tainted by suffering? And Isaiah says to Israel and he says to us that we can trust in the promises of God. Why? Because he is God. Because he is the creator of all things, the only true and living God who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. You see, our God promises to deliver his people because he is the one who formed all things by the word of his power. He has created all things out of nothing. The the prophet Isaiah wants us to behold the grandeur of God. These rhetorical questions should remind us uh, of Job's dialogue with God when faced with the palpable reality of his own suffering. And God says to Job in Job chapter 38, when he answers Job out of the whirlwind, he says, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? You see, the source of comfort for Job in the midst of great trial is the supremacy and the sovereignty of our creator. And it's the same for the prophet Isaiah. God's supremacy is our great source of comfort. There's none like him. All other gods are false gods. Isaiah 40, verses 19 and 20. I want you to think about this for a moment. 
the farthest galaxy known to mankind is around 13.5 billion light years away. Let's say that you could travel there in the fastest aircraft in the world, a rocket that can roughly travel around 4,500 miles per hour. Do you know how long it would take you to get there? Anyone want to guess? Assuming the average human lifespan is 80 years old, it would roughly take you 250 trillion lifetimes to get there. 250 trillion lifetimes to travel to the furthest galaxy that we know of at the fastest speed that we are capable of. And you know what the prophet Isaiah says to us? He says, if that is the vastness of our measurable creation, how much greater is the vastness of our immeasurable God and creator? And this all-powerful creator has not only spoken all things into existence, but he continues to sustain all things even now actively by the word of his power. He doesn't just create the world, set the clock, and leave it to its own devices. He actively governs all things even now. He has measured the heavens and the earth. He has numbered the hairs of our head. He knows our tomorrow. He knows our forever. He holds our beginning and our end in the palm of his hand. And nothing that happens to us Nothing is outside of his will. In the mind of God, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, like the dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him, Isaiah says in verses 15 and 22. See, Isaiah wants us to see the incomparable God in his glory, in his grandeur, in his splendor. He governs and sustains every atom of creation. And this has profound implications for us. There there are no rogue molecules. There are no molecules that have a mind of their own. This 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 is of profound comfort for us as believers. Because God foreordains everything that happens to you and everything that will happen to you God is not the author of evil. He doesn't tempt you to sin. He doesn't bring evil upon you. But as Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, what man intends for good, God intends. What man intends for evil, sorry, God intends for good. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And I love the way that this is summarized in perhaps the most pastoral reformed confession I know of. The first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism says that Jesus also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. you are here this evening and you are questioning what God is doing in your life 
or in our church or in your family, whatever it is you're facing, know that he welcomes your cares and your concerns. Know that he is still in control. He is still seated on the throne. He is still actively governing and sustaining all things. He listens to your cries and he he knows your worries. He is grieved at the way that sin so easily ensnares and divides and destroys. But trust, trust that he will complete the good work which he has begun in you. Trust that his promises are sure precisely because he is God. Well, thirdly, the prophet Isaiah preaches the gospel to us by reminding us that God brings strength and healing to all who wait upon him. Verses 27 to 31. Notice verse 27. The prophet Isaiah anticipates the attitude of Israel in response to the sovereignty of God. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. In other words, why, why do you say that God has given up on you? Why do you say that God has forsaken you? The all-powerful God who exists from himself through all eternity, he shares his power with the powerless. Verses 28 and 29. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Brothers and sisters, I don't want us to miss uh, this important point. A look at the way the prophet Isaiah responds to to, to Israel. How does he respond to the downcast soul? How does Isaiah respond to those who question the Lord? He preaches the gospel. He preaches the all-sufficiency of Christ. He preaches Christ and him crucified. And so when our souls are downcast, when we are tempted to question the goodness of God in the face of our trials, we must do the same. We must boldly preach the gospel to ourselves. Our adversary, the devil, would love nothing more for us to turn inward in our trials, to to draw back from God, to blame him, to embitter him, to shake our fist at him, to be angry at his providence. But we must resist our adversary and, and be firm in the faith, knowing that after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish us. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. God gives power to the faint and strength to the weak. All he asks is that we come to him as beggars with empty hands, ready to receive the gift of faith, ready to be instruments of his grace. And when we humbly approach him, as the infinite God, 
the Lord of all, the sustainer, the creator, the governor of all things, when we approach him humbly, God grants us his power. And and God's power is displayed in the midst of our weakness. As Christ Jesus himself says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Brothers and sisters, we can't walk this road of the Christian life in our own strength. Isaiah reminds us, verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. In other words, if we lean upon our own strength, if we reject the gift of grace as we humbly approach the Lord Jesus Christ, we will grow faint. We will lose heart. But beloved, for those who do wait upon the Lord, for those who look to the Lord Jesus Christ and not to their own strength, we hear this promise. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting upon the Lord is the life of every believer. As one theologian puts it, to wait on God is not simply to mark time. Rather, it it is to live in confident expectation of his action on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, waiting upon the Lord, waiting patiently upon his mercy is the only source of strength and true healing in this life. Do not give up. Press on, continue to run the race that is set before you. And if you're running your race and you're feeling discouraged, be reminded that though your flesh shall fade and wither, God's word abideth forever. And if your soul is downcast, there's no better place to be right now than in the house of the Lord, worshiping the God of the universe our King of kings, our Lord of lords, worshiping him, singing his praises together as his people. May the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, may the comforter himself give us that strength to mount up with eagle's wings, to run and not be weary, to walk and not be faint. Amen. Lord, our souls wait for you. Our souls wait for you, and in your word we hope. Our souls wait for you more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, O people of God, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Amen.